Yes, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Sports Bazaar. We're about to play you one of our interviews for the summer season. I've done three interviews over the next three weeks. They're all looking really what it's like to be a fan of certain teams in America. We focused on America. It's a deep dive for these three. I'm hoping to then do a similar thing with England and the Premier League or Italy and you know, Serie A and all these sort of things. We want to go around the globe and really start to talk to people who follow their team with enormous passion in Australia too, in New Zealand, and interview them. And so we've lined up three over the next three weeks. We're going to look at Mets fans. We're going to look at Jets and Yankees fans. And we're going to look at Texas football as well. So we've got lots of good stuff coming. But I also want to hear your thoughts about who else you think we should interview and what teams we should do. Because we all know being a sports fan is where the true bizarre behavior comes in. So I hope you enjoy these. I'm looking forward to you hearing them. It's Sports Bazaar. This is where the trouble starts. It's like a party switch has flipped off. We're not here for a haircut. The hunt for the weirdest. You're blowing my mind. I can't keep it. You fact check this. There is no logic to any of what's going to happen. Strangest. Wow. This is outrageous. Not for the ages. Things are just going to get sillier and sillier. No red flags there. Most unbelievable. Volatile. Erratic. Simple. And clinically insane. Stories to ever occur. There's a lot of our stories that start with someone fleeing money lenders. This is not the perfect preparation. In the world of sport. This is the opposite of perfect preparation. <laughs> this is the worst. Sports Bazaar. You know, were you saying horse whipped as in he was actually horse whipped? Yeah, uh, he said there's only one thing for it. I ordered hair of the dog. <laughs> a rabble of vagrants, drunkards, ruffian brawlers and gambling desperada. So like the Sports Bazaar audience. <laughs> this is the Sports Bazaar Summer Edition. Did I miss that meeting? You missed a lot of meetings. <laughs> With Titus O'Reilly. Yes, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Sports Bazaar. I'm Titus O'Reilly, and I'm very thrilled about this because I have someone whose work I've followed a long time. I've read all of his stuff, and I really do mean that. I was reading one about why everyone watches shows now with subtitles the other day (laughs) (laughs) because you can't understand a word people are saying. It's Devin Gordon. He's written for a huge amount of publications, everything from The Atlantic, The New York Times Magazine, ESPN The Magazine. He was executive editor at GQ magazine. Devin, it's just a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. You write about sport, but you also write about everything really, don't you? You sort of turn your hand to whatever takes your interest. Not too long ago, I realized that the one common thread, or if there's a beat that I have, it's extreme people. It's like weirdos and lunatics and fringe characters. And that 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 sort of extends to my sports. That's why I'm here to talk about the New York Mets, right? It's perfect. Yeah, perfect. And that's what our podcast is all about. People who do very odd things, things that you would think, <laughs> if someone told me this, I would not believe it, except it is yes. true. That's what we always say about our stories. And your book, So Many Ways to Lose, The Amazing True Story of the New York Mets, the best worst team in sports is it's just perfect for our podcast because I've said to you, I'm a Melbourne Football Club supporter. We know losing. We know how hard it is. But what I love about your definition right up start, if we get the definition before we go into who the Mets are, for those that don't know in their history a little bit, you call them the best worst team in sports. Now, this doesn't make them the worst team as in they never win. What do you mean by the best worst team? It means they're gifted at the art of losing. <laughs> you know, you can lose yes. at any point along the way, as you know. You don't just have to lose consistently and voluminously to be gifted at losing. That makes you the Detroit Lions. 
reasons. That makes you yeah. just, you know, a garden variety inept franchise. And I'm sure that your Australian listeners are thinking of a, of a team that just is boring and bad and, and doesn't seem to have much reason to exist. What's special about the Mets is the flourish, the panache, the, the charm and invention with which they lose at every stage along the way. When they're a really terrible team, they're terrible in inventive ways, but they're also capable of getting right to the brink of triumph, deep into the playoffs or right to the end of the season with a playoff berth in their grasp, and then fumbling it in the most extraordinary of ways. That's what separates the Mets, is, just, is, is not just losing, but doing it with style. They do, and I think the thing that hurts you as a fan and my Melbourne Demons did this sometimes, there were some seasons where I'd go and I'd know we would barely win a game that year. And so you have no hope. And so you're kind of, you're going with no expectation. The really bad teams to support are the ones that build your hope up. Yes. Get it to the point where, and, you know, the Mets have, you know, you've got to believe as one of the, they make you believe that you start to have expectations. This time it's different. This time they are going to do it. And it's at that moment that they let you down again before they proceed to start building you up again. And that's what the Mets do, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. In my book, I described Mets fans as being a combination, an almost paradoxical and seemingly impossible combination of thinking both disaster is inevitable and there might be a miracle brewing, (laughs) which seems like two thoughts that's impossible to have in your head at the same time. But that's what it is to be a Mets fan. That's what's special and unique about us. Yeah, you're not just, we're not going to win anything. It's like this year might happen. Yes. And there's been the miracles. So I just love you describe this as you've always been irrationally optimistic about them, like a puppy that keeps running full speed into a glass door. And it's like you never learned to not run into that glass door. Yeah, the book was published before the 2021 season. So we've been through three seasons now since the book has come out. Several times during each of those seasons. And by the way, that's a whole range of outcomes for the Mets. One of those teams faded and collapsed down the stretch after being in first place the whole season. One of those teams went to the playoffs. And one of those teams was just bad right? Three totally different trajectories for a season. And yet multiple times throughout all three, Mets fans, friends of mine would text me and say, oh boy, this season is going to be a chapter in your next book. It's going to be a chapter in the sequel. Yeah. Each of the three seasons since I published the book, and I'm sure next season will be the same way. Yeah. It's, it's just kind of what we do. You can count on it happening. You just can't ever anticipate how it's going to happen, the particular flavor profile of, of how yeah. we're going to lose this year. They do invent a new way every time. Like they're not one note in their ability to come up with a way to... Truly special. I mean, if you go through the history of the Mets, there's very rarely a repeat engagement of the type of disaster that they conjure. I mean, this past season was a pretty big top 10, I would say, Mets disastrous seasons. They were the most expensive team in baseball history and finished close to last place in their division. And yet, I think that's a top 10 disastrous season for the Mets. I would have to go through the history, but I'm not sure it actually makes the top 10. I think it's actually pretty borderline, in part because it's not even the first time that the Mets had 
you know, the worst team that money could buy. There was a book called The Worst Team That Money Could Buy written about the Mets that was about an entirely different Mets season in the 90s. Yeah, it's they do it every time. We do, yeah, it's, you know, this season, you know, could have, would have been the worst season ever for so many franchises and for the Mets, it kind of barely rated. Yeah, you have to argue whether it's in the top 10. Yeah, you have to kind of really go through it. <laughs> so the Mets are an interesting team because in 1957, you have the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants, they relocate, they move away from New York, leaving just yes. the Yankees in town, which are in the American League, for those that yes. don't know. No National League franchise. And so out of a bunch of machinations, the invention of this new team comes in, which is the Mets. And you say it's sort of the followers of it are people who are either refugees of those two New York sides who didn't want to follow them yeah. to other cities and people who just ideologically are opposed to the Yankees. <laughs> so it's sort of that kind of group of people. And they start off very badly as the expansion team, like they're sort of these lovable losers. But yeah. then they start to do fairly well. Like they start to have a few miracle seasons that I feel kind of sets the Mets up for what they do, where they have some miracle seasons where they actually do win the World Series twice. And is this what sets the – it's kind of like it fakes everyone out that actually this is going to be a really good – Big market, lots of money, lots of fans. They outdraw the Man Yankees sometimes. This should be a powerhouse side. And, like, there's the 86 Miracles met, uh, you know, the 86 team that wins who, you know. So you've got all this thing happening. Mm -hmm. That's feeding into your psyche as you're young that, hey, we're a team that can do this. Yeah, so I was born in 1976, which is a true nadir moment for the Mets. I mean, obviously, I'm too young to be a baseball fan, but the late 70s Mets were probably – as bad and as unwatchable as the entire franchise history. So that's what I was sort of born into, you know, the air I was marinating in, right? Yeah. But by the time I'm watching baseball in the mid-1980s, the Mets are a powerhouse. They are loaded. They're one of the best teams in baseball. And when I'm 10 years old, which is really only two years into me being a baseball fan, the Mets won the World Series. So I had been born into and conditioned to both understand that the Mets were this famously hapless franchise. I had been given and inherited and absorbed that history. But my experience of this team was we were a steamroller. Yeah. We just killed people. And so as a result, I expected naively that those winning days were going to come back. But this was with the franchise from the very beginning, right? That, that this was, you know, the 1962 Mets, the original Mets were the worst team in baseball history. They set mm -hmm. a record for the worst losing percentage and the most losses, 40 and 120. Probably will never be topped. No one's really even come close except for the Detroit Tigers one year not too long ago. Worst team in baseball history, famously clumsy, famously hapless. Seven years later, they win the World Series. Seven years later. So you've got this polarity right from the start of the absolute worst to the miraculous best within seven years. So the Mets are sort of laying their markers down about what kind of franchise they're going to be right from the beginning. And then four years later, after 1969, they go to the World Series again and come within a game of beating Reggie Jackson and the dynastic Oakland A's, one of the best teams in baseball history. But one of the funny things about that 73 team is that's the you gotta believe team. That's where that phrase you gotta believe was coined. Yeah. And the reason it was coined is because in 1973, in the last week of August, the Mets were in last place. They were in last place in the National League. 
East. And this was a very different national league. This was not when there was four or five teams. It was six teams deep. They had to leapfrog all of those teams down the stretch in about a month. They finished the season 83 and 79. One of the amazing things is that if they had, there was a universe in which they could have made it all the way to the World Series and finished with a below 500 record. Mm. That's how mediocre the 73 Mets were. Another miracle. You know, that is the history that I was born into. And then in 1986, they win the World Series. And my first taste of what it would be like to be a Mets fan for real in my living history was immediately after that 1986 season. Because Dwight Gooden, our ace 20-something-year-old pitcher, like the greatest pitcher anyone had seen in baseball, immediately goes into drug rehab. Our center fielder in spring training during a routine rundown drill gets hit in the eye with a baseball, shattering his sunglasses because he was wearing sunglasses, which he shouldn't have been doing, and has like fragments of glass in his eyeball. So we're not off to a great start. Yeah. You know, and that season, the 1987 season, the team just blows apart and they're terrible. And in retrospect, you find out that everyone was drinking, everyone was doing drugs, everyone was punching each other, everyone hated each other, and they came together for this hot, tumultuous moment of 1986, and they blew apart. Mm. That's when I learned what it was going to be like to be a Mets fan. (laughs) And that was a book, wasn't it? The Bad Guys Won, Yeah, I think, was written about. That was the title of of Jeff Perlman's great classic book, The Bad Guys Won. That was the title you know, I'm 10 years old. Yeah, you're not across all of this. I love these guys. Yeah. You know, I thought they were all wonderful guys, delightful people, fun. I, you know, I see them in like the promotional commercials. They're my childhood team. And then you grow up and somebody writes a book about them called The Bad Guys One. And you realize, oh, yeah. that's what was really going on. And Because you had Daryl Strawberry as well, who had his addiction problems. You had like, yes. they were all cut down too short too because of those problems. So you, you look like you're on the brink of a dynasty or, you know, and they implode from within. Yeah, you know, fame in the 1980s comes after them. I mean, Daryl Strawberry specifically and Dwight Gooden more broadly were the two chief reasons why I became a Mets fan. Mm. Right? I was a kid growing up uh, in suburban New York at a time in a place when every kid like me rooted for the Yankees. For whatever reason, you know, I didn't inherit a team. I got to choose. A big reason why I chose the Mets is because I was eight years old and their best young player was a six foot six inch right fielder. Six foot six inches is crazy tall. Yeah. Named Strawberry. His last name was Strawberry. He was a six foot six inch black guy named Strawberry. I'm done. I'm sold. I'm in. Yeah. And the other best player was Doc Gooden, who is 19, 20 years old, and he threw the ball harder than everyone and struck everyone out. I'm sold. I'm in. And those two guys, within a matter of years, were going off the rails. First Doc, and then Daryl. And they both went and played for the Yankees. Got even worse. (laughs) So that team just explodes, that championship team after that. Yes. Then you get to 91 to sort of 93, and this is the worst team money can buy. Yes. Which you could argue this season has been, but this was your first worst team money can buy. No, this was the real worst team that money could buy. You consider 91 to 93, that's the worst? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because those guys, that team were detestable. They were just filled with jerks. 
Yes. Like Vince Coleman. He's a jerk. Well, it was going to bring up Vince Coleman, and you had Bobby Benilla too, who I want to get to his contract. Yeah, Bobby Benilla. Yeah, like a you know a, a historic <laughs> loser for the Mets. I mean, you know. But you've had Vince Coleman. Tell us about what he did after a game once. You must be referring to the time he was in the backseat of Eric Davis's Jeep. This was at yes. Dodgers Stadium in Los Angeles after the Mets got beat by the Dodgers. And you're paying this guy a fortune. Paying him a fortune. I mean, first of all. I hated the fact that he was on the team to begin with because Vince Coleman was the right fielder and speed demon for the St. Louis Cardinals, who were the most loathsome team in the 1980s, the nemesis of the Mets in the 1980s. Killed us throughout the mid-1980s. And now he's on my team when he's washed up. Yeah, And he instantly starts fighting with everyone and yelling at the manager and picking fights. But on this night, he was in the backseat of Eric Davis's Jeep. Eric Davis is playing for the Dodgers, by the way. He was a guy on the other team. Yeah. And he's in the parking lot and he's getting taunted by Dodgers fans. And he decides this would be a good time to light firecrackers and throw at them. And he injures three people, including yeah. an infant child. Yeah, and I think the child was the worst injured too. So it was. Yes, I'm pretty sure the child was the worst injured. Like it was a big firecracker. It wasn't a little penny bang. Was- yeah, begging the question why are there firecrackers? Why are there <laughs> even firecrackers in Eric Davis's car to begin yeah. with? Let's just start there because it was not the 4th of July. But he finds them, he decides to light them and throws them at civilians in a parking lot. Bobby Benilla was in the car too, apparently not involved in the incident, but he was in the car. It was a 33-year-old woman, an 11-year-old boy, and a two-year-old girl all injured and treated at local hospitals. So that, you know, this is a low act. Two kids and a mom. Yeah, it's not. Good job, Vince Coleman. (laughs) And, you know, Vince Coleman wasn't alone in that. Like you said, Bobby Benilla was on that team. There were a handful of just jerks on that team. And the manager was a disaster and no one liked him and they all fought with him and he was the wrong guy for the team. So that team, to me, is the worst team that money can buy. This year's team has a lot of likable guys on it. Yeah. Like this, this was a perfectly likable Mets team where you look at the strategy and you're like, okay, we tried, we went for it, and it didn't work. Yeah. Now, it happens to be that it was like a historic fortune that they spent on this team and it didn't work. But it's not the same villainy that that team had. That team was a bunch of villains and jerks and they got in fights. And that's, to me, the worst thing that you can be, dislikable. Yeah, because Coleman also hit Dwight Gooden's shoulder with a golf club while practicing his swing in the clubhouse. That was another one that happened. Oh, God, I actually forgot about that one. Thank you for reminding me of that one. Yeah, He hurt people when he wasn't even trying. I know, and the Brett Saberhagen incident where he... (laughs) He put bleach into a water gun and shot it at a group of reporters. <laughs> it's perfect that Brett Saberhagen did that because he is one of so many superstars who, well after they were good at what they did for a living, got paid a lot to do it for the Mets, right? Brett Saberhagen right. is a classic, oh, right, he was on the Mets kind of guy. You know, yeah, yeah. there's so many of those guys where at some point, long after they should have been on a good team, the Mets paid them, and, and Saber Higgin was a, was a great example. So many guys also have their lowest moments in Mets uniforms, right? That, that seems to be it, yeah. Like guys who have good careers and are respected athletes and respected players, like David Cohn, have their lowest, most humiliating moments in a Mets uniform, right? Yes. Like David Cohn has to have like a masturbating in public incident, not with the Yankees, 
right? No. Not with the Toronto Blue Jays. Where he goes and pitches perfect games and does all sorts of things. Of course, things. yes, exactly. Goes and has a perfect game. He's going to that he's going to do for the Yankees, right? Yeah. He's going to have the perfect game for the Yankees. He's going to win a World Series with the Blue Jays and the Yankees, right? With the Mets, with the Mets, he's going to get accused of masturbating in a bullpen. Yeah. Right? <laughs> That's what you do when you're with the Mets. So it all works out. Bobby Manila, who you had, who was of not great, you get him back as a free agent. We did an episode on the worst contract clauses in history. Yes. And so we had all sorts of ones, like Manny Ramirez once had in, when he played in Japan in his contract that he had to have access 24-7 to sushi. God, I love you, Manny Ramirez. I love yeah. you. Oh. Manny, we could do a whole other episode on Manny. Just, yeah. But Bobby comes back to the Mets. They put him on this amazing deal that we covered before, but basically they owe him $5.9 million in guaranteed salary. Yeah. And they come up with a way to defer the payments over time, but in a way that makes it about $30 million to the point where they, they're still paying him to 2035. Yes. So they have a Bobby Manila day where he is still receiving money. He'll be 73 when payments stop. So this is an amazing contract where this guy didn't perform for you at all, but you've somehow managed to engineer what should have been, you know, pay six million and he's gone. Oh, not only didn't perform, I believe it's one point one eight million, if I remember right, per year. Yeah. Every July first. Per year. And we're paying him that. And have been paying him that since twenty eleven. And will be paying him that until the mid twenty thirties. Just to go away. Just to go away, yeah. Immediately. Not even just to go away, because he was only going to be there for another year, right? They could have just stuffed him at the end of the bench. They paid him all that to go away now. <laughs> go away immediately, right? Yeah. And to be fair to the Mets, there's no reason to be, but let's be fair to the Mets for a minute. Yeah. It's basically an annuity. Yes. And they didn't actually make it up. It's, you know, in, for my book, I interviewed uh, the agent who negotiated this contract. Yeah. And he's an insurance guy. He's an insurance guy by trade. He was an agent for a while. And then he went back to insurance, he told me, because there's more money in it, right? Right. Which I thought was hilarious. Yeah, he was talking to me while he was walking around the perimeter of his Malibu estate. So I'm going to take him at his word that, that insurance is a better business. <laughs> but he was like, this is just, it wasn't really that revolutionary. Some other players had done it before. What was unique about it was the fact that it was being used to get rid of someone rather than induce them to stay. That was new. Yes. It's usually not how it goes. More importantly, when it kicked in, and it kicked in in 2011, and that's one of the reasons why Bobby Bonilla Day has become a holiday. It's not so much because of the novelty of the deal and even that we're paying this guy that we hated money to this day, but it kicked in in 2011, which just so happened to be a moment when I'm not sure how big a story the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme was in Australia. Very big. Yeah, I was going to bring that up next year. Well, one of Bernie Madoff's biggest clients and closest family friends was Fred Wilpon, who was the principal primary owner of the New York Mets. And Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme came tumbling down right before 2011 and Bobby Bonilla's payments from this deal that he had struck in 1999 going into the 2000 season finally started kicking in. Mm. In other words, the Mets had to pay this outcast, this historic joke of their franchise, a million dollars or so a year, starting at a moment when 
the owner of the team could barely afford to make payroll. Yeah. There was a moment in 2011 when Bobby Bonilla was the highest paid outfielder on the Mets payroll. And he had been retired and hadn't played a game in several years. So that's one end of it. But the other end of it is that the Mets weren't paying any other outfielders more than $1.2 million because they couldn't afford. Mm. So the combination of those factors is what made Bobby Bonilla Day so infamous, right? Yeah. And now it's become just a tradition <laughs> and will continue to be a tradition until it ends. Although now that Fred Wilpon no longer owns the Mets franchise, the, the team was sold to Steve Cohen a couple of years ago. That's created the ability to embrace and celebrate and have fun with Bobby Benia day, right? It, it's not egg on Steve Cohen's face, right? So he can, yeah. he can play with it and he can have fun with it. And now Bobby Benia has sort of been welcomed back into the Mets fold rather belatedly. Yes, because <laughs> the Bernie Madoff—they were very close to Bernie. That the Irving Picard, who was appointed by the court to try and claw back a lot of Madoffers, yeah, he sort of accused them of being in on the scam or knowing about it. That's how close they were. Now they pleaded against that, and it was a deal was struck that that wasn't the case. No, they basically had to plead. They had to prove they were fools. Right? Yeah. Rather than be they had to prove in court <laughs> that they were fools. Yeah. That they were not complicit. They were fools. Yeah. And I know every Mets fan who was following this is probably like, yeah, I buy that. <laughs> there was a time with my football team where they were accused of tanking, you know, so losing on purpose for draft picks. And they actually got investigated by the league of where they basically throwing games. Yeah. So they got found not guilty of tanking, but they did a bit of a fudge deal for bringing the game into disrepute. And everyone was saying, you know, do you think they were tanking? And I was like, what was the difference between the season they were tanking? How could you tell? And every other season, like because the next two years they were just as bad when they weren't tanking. So I agree with you. The Mets fans looked at this and went, "Yeah, I'd believe these guys would be patsies." Of course, because what's the alternative? They're a part, an active part of this ingenious scheme. No, they're not. It's the Wilpons. Of course, they're not. Of course, they were duped. <laughs> uh, you also had like uh, some of the weird stuff I just did ready, like Mike Piazza, who was this huge yeah. trade for you guys, a blockbuster trade, a star, gets you in a, the famous World Series against the Yankees, an amazing player in many ways. Yeah. But one of the things I love is he was forced to call a press conference to deny he was gay. Yeah. You know, yeah. like it was just one of those things as a fan I was reading, there was these rumours circulating, he actually called the press conference. And it's just one of those things as a sports fan you're watching going, why is this happening to us? Like this is kind of absurd, you know, that of course. we should be focusing on baseball. We've got this once in a generational star and here he is calling a press conference to say, I want to refute these things that I'm gay. And you just think, why, why does this happen? That was such a surreal moment. You could never imagine that happening to a, if he was on the Yankees. The same guy. It would never happen yeah. on the Yankees because, first of all, they'd just be too afraid to bring it up. Yeah. They'd never dignify it. But with the Mets, it just fits into the entire gestalt of the franchise. And one of my favorite things about Mike Piazza yeah. in his memoir, you know, to be honest with you, I don't care, of course. Yeah about Mike Piazza's sexuality. I was probably persuaded by some of the rumors at the time, just because, you know, if you hear them, you sometimes think they are. But the first time I actually was convinced that Mike Piazza probably wasn't gay is when I read his memoir and he wrote, I promise you, if I was gay, I'd be gay all the way. Yeah. And that was the first time I, when he wrote that, I was like, actually, now I think he might be straight. 
just because the way he said it yeah, yeah. and the comfortable with the way he wrote it made me think that sounds like something a straight person would say. The way his answer that he would have just fully embraced it and he'd be out there telling you is like not the answer you usually get. It actually persuaded me that he was telling the truth. But it's the only thing, it's only on the Mets that you can do. And like that would never trail Derek Jeter or A-Rod or Paul O'Neill or something like that. And even if it did, a player actually calling the press conference. Yes, that is, yeah, to refute it. To purely refute it. And then that just made everyone think, oh, he definitely is now. Of course. These days that wouldn't even happen, but it was this 2002, people weren't as alive to these issues. Another one I loved was um, (laughs) Bobby Valentine when he was a manager, and I was watching a lot of New York baseball at this time, and I'm a huge baseball fan. I've been to the Mets' new stadium and watched a game there and things, and Bobby Valentine, the manager, he once gets thrown out of a game in the 12th inning. Yes. What does he do? He's ejected from the game, so you can't be on the bench. Yeah. The camera cuts back. It's like the, I think it's like the 13th inning. It's in extra time. Yes. The TV goes to the bench and what do they see? They see Bobby Valentine poorly disguised back on the bench wearing a fake nose and a mustache. (laughs) Um, It's like a spy. It's like someone dressing in like a a sort of a Groucho Marx kind of. Yes. And it was like part of the joke and part of what was so funny about it to me was that it was such a bad disguise. It was obvious that it was him. It was like he was in on the joke. It's on YouTube and the commentators are laughing. The commentators are laughing because, first of all, the thing you need to know about Bobby Valentine is that he's a smart ass. Yeah. He thinks he's smarter than everyone. But he's also very gregarious, funny, witty, and he takes it too far because he's so egomaniacal. Yes. But he was very entertaining and he knew he was being funny. And I thought that was great. I mean, when he came back out and I saw him and they cut to him, I thought it was the most hilarious thing. Oh, no, it was. It's great. It divided baseball. Some people got so mad at him and just being disrespectful to the game. And that was one of my favorite Mets moments. But of course it was a Mets moment, right? Of course the Mets would have the manager who sneaks back out of the, you know, gets ejected, puts on a (laughs) bad disguise and sneaks back out. And they have to throw him out again. I very much enjoyed that. That was a good Mets moment. I couldn't let you go without telling the story of if you're a good, bad team, as you say, you have to have bad injuries. Like you've mentioned the guy like getting shattered and sunglasses and that. Yeah. It's rare though that a wild animal causes the injury. Oh, yes. Ioannis Cespedes. He did a couple of strange things while it was met, didn't he? Ioannis Cespedes single-handedly got us to the World Series in 2015. So he's a fantastic player. Fantastic power hitter. Of course, the Mets immediately signed him to a long-term deal after that season, and he barely played at all. But one of the reasons why he missed time for the Mets, the last season-ending injury out of many that he suffered, was a mystery for a long time. Uh, No one knew uh, how it was exactly that he had broken both of his ankles, which is hard to do. (laughs) It's hard to Um, do. There were lots of rumors fell off his horse, fell out of a tree, ATV accident, God knows. Finally, it it comes out that he had been trying to chase a wild boar off of his ranch, (laughs) but it charged him. And in attempting to evade it, he fell into a ditch and broke not one, but both of his ankles. By the time he got back, he finally only made it back for the COVID season in 2020. After striking out pretty much every at-bat he got at the start of that season, one day in Atlanta, he just stopped showing up. Yeah. He literally, his, that's how his Mets career ended. He disappeared, didn't he? He, just, he literally like, disappeared. He ghosted. He ghosted the Mets. 
Uh, in fact, he ghosted us for four years and then he officially ghosted the Mets and that's how his career ended. I remember reading J.D. Davis, who's the infielder, said the Mets were celebrating wins with smoke machines and a DJ booth and all sorts of things. And he, he thought that he actually, when he ghosted them, stole their smoke machine, which is just <laughs> one of the great. He said uh, last year, I was like, where are the lasers and everything? And people were like, I think he took them back to his place in Florida. And I just thought that is the greatest Mets thing of all time that this guy ghosts you. It's the Ioannis Espedes' arc. <laughs> it's just... His, his arc with the Mets is a, he's just a classic Mets character. I mean, they're, you know, he is the opposite end of the spectrum from like Bartolo Colon, where it just, you know, where Bartolo is just a yeah. beloved, delightful Met through and through. Yeah. Oddball, but one of us. Just in wrapping up, it's been great having you. I'm going to give you some insight into a Mets supporter's view of the world. So... I think you've hired the Yankees bench coach as your manager. Yes. Who was didn't have a lot of managing experience. And the Yankees had about the worst season you can have this year, yeah. for, for them especially. But you have poached someone from the back room for the Milwaukee Brewers. Yes. We, are, we have a, a, a very esteemed president of baseball operations who I'm very excited about. And there's hope again, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, which is why I'm trusting that he knows what he's doing by hiring the Yankees bench coach, because if, if he was such a good bench coach, then why were the Yankees so terrible last year? Um, I, I'm skeptical, but, you know, everybody says this guy knows what he's doing, so we'll see. <laughs> well, I wish you the best of luck. If there's uh, any fan base that deserves to go all the way, it it's definitely is the Mets. Your book, which is just the best, uh, very convincing argument, so many ways to lose, the amazing true story of the New York Mets. It makes a very convincing argument that you are the best, worst team in sports. Thank you. And it's been an absolute pleasure having you on explaining. Thank you so much. It was really fun talking about this. Glad I'm talking to a kindred spirit. I could feel it in your vibes. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Take it easy. If you'd like more Sports Bazaar, Join our membership program, Bazaar Plus, and one of the key bits that people are loving is you get an extra episode every week. Here's a short outtake from our bonus episode. Hey, why don't we do something on Des Renfrew? Okay. So he was like, you talk about how nutty Australian swimmers are. <laughs> yeah. He was the original. He used to cover himself from head to toe in chicken fat. Yeah. And I'm going, do you need to swim the coast to do that? <laughs> do you that, need to swim? That's a Saturday night view. That's just, if I can get my Speedos. And cover myself in editor. Look out and put your helmet on. I'll take you on, Renford. (laughs) I'd be licking myself. (laughs) Did he do it in a shark tank? This is a disturbing image. I did it on your show a few years ago. We talked about, radio show, we talked about swimming the English Channel. So they get bitten a lot, don't they? You don't swim straight across. You have to do a sort of a Z shape to go with the currents. Can you swim it both ways? Or do you have to go one way? You can swim it either way, but there's all these rules about it where you start and finish and all that you sort know of I'd stuff. Yeah, I do. I'd swim across the channel, then do a tumble turn and swim back. <laughs> of all the... <laughs> <laughs> and that's a short clip from our bonus episode each week for members who join our Bazaar Plus program. Simply go to the link in the show notes or go to bazaarplus.com. <laughs>